0: You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. So many of you know my story. Uh, Some some of you do not. Um, So we're going to fill in a little bit of that gap here today. Uh, But I was born and raised on the West Coast in San Diego uh, until I was about 16 years old. And then I left to go to the middle of the West and play hockey like all people from Southern California do. It's quite odd. But uh, what you may not know is that when you grow up on the West Coast, you grow up learning about these rugged individuals, the, the people who had this vision of, of striking it rich in the gold mines or, or just making a better life. So they have uh, the, these visions for riches in some version of the good life way out West and so we would, we, we would learn about these people and we would even play games that uh, like imagined ourselves into the lives of Lewis or Clark. Or, or we would do the whole Oregon trail bit and we would play the game like back in the day when the computers were not in your pockets. Uh, and so we would, we would play these games and um, these people were really they're like the Elon Musks of their day, if you will. Just like charging a new way forward. And as I was thinking about this text this past week, what kept coming to my mind were these little memories, especially as uh, like anytime you like open up a news app or you turn on a TV or you're in your dentist's office and you're just looking, you're getting bombarded with the reality that our country, our nation sees itself as this place that forges a new way forward. It's constantly like every day the political landscape seems to be shifting and, and so people and pundits alike, they're, they're discussing how they're going to reimagine the landscape of the world, that they're going to be the new thing that's breaking out. And what's, what's really curious to me is that whether it's back on the West Coast or it's here in Des Moines, maybe it's unique in Des Moines because of uh, the caucuses and all, all that goes on there, which this is our first year with that, hilarious. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, our nation, wherever you're at, whether you're in the middle or on the coast, our nation prides itself on being able to forge a new way forward. And I think that those embers are still red hot. And in, in the spirit of that image, it goes by this name of manifest destiny. And it, it, this idea of manifest destiny, it, people who would hold to it say that God actually was this divine call to take the frontier. uh, Back in the 1870s, there was a picture that uh, captured this image in the the minds and hearts uh, of the people of America. It's called this American Progress. And what you see in this image is you see this goddess going forward. And you'll notice that the mountains are a bit dark a bit ominous, if you will. And then there's the frontiersman. You actually see the little covered wagon, Oregon Trail style. But you see that there are uh, like militia-like folk who have their rifles in hand and they're like the wild beasts, the buffalo are charging ahead of them. The indigenous peoples are being supplanted from their lands. And this is how America is making their way into the darkness. Notice behind that it's light. She's holding the, the telegraph wire in her hand. This is the sign of progress. And know here's my point with an, an image like this to start a talk about Jesus. Uh, as much as our nation like enshrines these frontiers, men and women of old, the entrepreneurs of today, if you will, like the image of the rugged individual is not individual. It's not unique. It's not authentic. It's not its true self. It's not living its best life. It's not doing any of that. Rather, individualism comes to bear on us by way of other individuals. In fact, we're going to make this case, or I'm going to try and make the case today, that we are all following someone or something. Or in the language of the Bible, we are being discipled. In other words, the question is not, am I being discipled? But the question is, who or what is discipling me? And trust me, we'll get to that weird Bible word, disciple. But the question is, who or what is discipling me? and that's why uh, we're gonna explore this today because at some point we have to chart a new way forward. We have to chart a course in the world and, or what some people will just simply say, make a plan for your life. And uh, when I was just a young warthog, uh, I, I thought, okay, um, hockey, right? Like I'm going to the middle of the West to do this hockey thing. And so what, what happens is you get these uh, Des Moines Buccaneers. This is like, picture this scene, these rowdy bunch of young folk. Uh, that was me. And you get housing parents and so you're there and my one of my housing moms she said so what's your plan so hockey no no, what's your plan b hockey so my plan was hockey hockey and now young folk today uh, their plan is going to like become famous on the youtubes on youtube they want to become youtube famous which is a plan it is a plan and it is a goal but it's about as tactful as uh, planning to win the lottery or like hockey hockey so this is, this is just not a, a course that is going to go well. Obviously, I'm not playing in NHL. Of all things, I'm preaching in a church, which still blows me away. But, but here we are. Like to chart a course, we have to have a vision. And that vision, it must come in collaboration with somebody else who's been there before, whether that be a parent or a teacher or a counselor or a friend or a pastor. Someone who can speak from some experience at some level help guide you along the way and yet vision is not the end goal like it's not just get hyped on vision because if you just have vision you're not going to do anything so we don't just need vision we need a way to actually implement that vision so we need like a map and then we don't just need a map we need somebody to guide us along the way so we need a vision and a way and a guide somebody who can offer course corrections along the way and so let's let's say that we actually get this vision in order so it's not so blurry anymore, and that the vision we embrace is true. And by true, I just mean it corresponds to reality. So it's not imaginary. It actually makes sense in the world we live in. So let's say you get a vision that's true, and then you get your map in order. And you actually get a, a guide who is wise and honest rather than aloof and dishonest. When all these elements come together, you are then on a path to what we could call the good life. But if any one of those elements are off, take for example, if your map is off by just a few degrees, then you will likely end up miles, like so far from where you planned on going. Because your course, every little incremental step that you take along the way that's off course is going to lead you away from your goal. It's gonna be like an increasingly widening gap. And so... It's all half, it all has to be together. It all has to be connected. One wrong turn, and it brings us to the place that we never imagined we would be. And maybe for some of you, that wrong turn has landed you in church this morning, and praise be to God that you're here. We welcome you. Hello. <laughs> but this is why I think it's true inside and outside the church. Because like our vision, our map, our guide, like, if, if they're off, then, then we're never going to get to the place we so deeply desire, this place of rest and contentment and joy. And whether you're inside or outside the church, th- these are the deep longings of the human heart. And yet from the teachings of the Bible and from human experience and, and just from wisdom and tradition writ large, it's clear that we are all out of whack. And now you can try and paint a different picture on Instagram, but when you like, in the silence of your own heart, you know this is true, that your vision is blurry, that your map is always a little bit off. And in this age of like hyper-individualism where you're told you need to make your own way, you need to be true to yourself, you have to be your own guide. And if you can hardly see the next step in front of you, how are you gonna guide yourself five, 10, 15, like three decades down the line? It's just like, no wonder our schools and our businesses and our churches are filled with anxious people, like littered with depression. It's because we have all of this weight bearing down on us and we don't, like how am I going to make sense of it? See, we, I, I think that we just lack the wisdom to lead ourselves. And I, I'm not making this up. There's a, a Christian philosopher, his name's Jamie K. Smith, and he says it this way. He says, The question isn't whether you're going to believe, but who. It's not merely about what to believe, but who to entrust yourself to. Do you really want to trust yourself? Do we really think humanity is the best bet? Do we really think we are the answer to our problems, we, who've generated all of them? But many people are like, yeah. And then they look back to people like, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who would definitely say, yeah, of course. They they would even insist that 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 one's self, that that we be true to ourselves, never imitate. Don't imitate. Because if you imitate, then you run the risk of what Emerson calls like living in the shadow of man or the institution. And all the millennials in the room, you're just like, that resonates with me at my core. Yes, like down with the patriarchy or something like that. Like you're just like, I don't want the institution, so you buck against it. But this simply is not the way of Jesus. And so when we think about this, is it any wonder that Jesus entered the world scene the way he did? that he came as a, as a teacher, that the, the divine put on flesh, the divine come to humanity, that he came to us as a teacher, more specifically as a rabbi to a Jewish people. See, for Jesus, the good life, or what he simply calls life to the full, it, it doesn't, like, it doesn't like, come from within and then spill out. The good life, life to the full, comes from without and then transforms us internally. It comes from life with him. And today in our little community, I I think that we would know that Jesus is more than a rabbi. I mean, the reason I think, I I don't have to think this, I know this because we just sing songs about Jesus as king we just entered into corporate confession where we made like the things that are known and unknown. We, we said them aloud to one another. We received this assurance of pardon that says that Jesus and Jesus alone is the one through whom I will be reconciled to God the Father and then to my neighbor. We just received all this. So certainly Jesus is more than just a good teacher. He's more than just a rabbi. But if you were in the first century, And if you were a first century Jew and Jesus rolled up to your synagogue, you would think, well, here's a rabbi. He looks the part, he dresses the part. And time and time again, you would go through maybe the gospel accounts today and you would look back and wonder, man, what would they think? Well, this is is what would happen. Like a religious leader or a person would come up to Jesus for healing and they would address him as teacher or rabbi. And even in the scene immediately following our teaching text, we see that Jesus goes to a synagogue, which is a house of worship for the Jewish people, and he goes to this place in Capernaum, and he's teaching them there. And they've never heard anybody teach with such authority. It, it, you see, now Mark never actually tells us what Jesus taught there. It just tells us that he cast out a demon, which is pretty epic. But, but then he says he was a teacher. So it's clear that Jesus is this teacher doing some teaching with authority. And like many Jews in Jesus' day, like at a popular level, this understanding of Jesus is no problem. Or this understanding of Jesus as a teacher, excuse me, is no problem. But, but when Jesus starts to do these things, like cast out demons and, and not just like speak, but speak with authority and then heal the sick, there's this twinge that starts to take place on the pages of the scripture. And we, we see that. Like, we will receive Jesus as teacher, but Savior and King? Hmm. That one's a bit heavy-handed. But but Teacher Jesus, I can deal with Teacher Jesus. I have a category for Teacher Jesus. And yet, what's interesting to me is that today it seems to be almost flipped. That we can receive Savior and King Jesus, but Teacher Jesus is going to demand something of how I live my life. That's a, a bit heavy. And so Jesus, this is, this is what I mean. Jesus is good to save my soul. And so we'll save things like, if Jesus can get me to eternity, then I can take care of the here and now. I can, I can walk my dog, Jesus. I can handle my morning routine, Jesus. I can handle my sexuality, Jesus. I can like, choose who to hang out with, Jesus. I can handle my social media, Jesus. Like, I can do all the day-to-day, Jesus. You just get me to eternity. I got the rest. And I I totally get this rationale, like I, I understand this, but what this rationale fails to consider is the nature of how God is bringing renewal. The renewal of God is not to evacuate us from our circumstances and get us to the heavens. The renewal of God is actually about getting heaven back into earth, from getting God's space into human space. It's the reunification of all things in Jesus. And so this rationale is just mistaken. It's it's off, it's it's off by more than just a few degrees. See, this, this idea about the reconciliation of all things is that living with Jesus is about living in the fullness of God's power here today, not far off in the distant future after we rest in peace. No, it's about living in God's power here today in Des Moines, like with your neighbors, with your partner, with your spouse, like whomever. And so Jesus is teacher, yes, and Jesus is savior and Lord, yes, because Jesus is the all in all. In fact, a a convert to the way of Jesus, somebody who Jesus confronted and um, caused him to like go blind because of the glory of God, which is also. Do you ever notice that the Bible, you open it up and you're just like, come on, really? This happened? But this is this is what we read. In Colossians 1.15, from, from a man who encountered Jesus with such visceral power, this is how he accounts of Jesus. This is uh, Colossians 1. He, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then he, he, hear this. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, the idea, the idea is that Jesus is superior to all. Like, um, how does that sound? How does that taste, that Jesus is superior to all? Nice? Does it bring up the warm fuzzies in you? Maybe for like two of you here who are like grinning awkwardly. Yeah, I see you. Yeah, see, see Jesus is superior to all teachers. He's superior to all leaders. He's superior to all gurus. That's actually what we're doing here today. We're reminding ourselves of the superiority of Jesus and then humbly putting our, placing ourselves underneath him to receive his wisdom, to receive his goodness, to receive his love. Just in case you were wondering why you were here this morning. So because in Jesus, what was torn apart by sin is coming back together. So if we're going to be a community who is like marked by the way of Jesus, if we're going to be a community following Jesus here in Des Moines, we need to get some clarity on what we're talking about when we're talking about following Jesus. So we need to return with this guy, Paul, in Colossians. We need to return with him to this robust, beautiful vision of Jesus. Because I think that we've actually lost sight of who Jesus is. And so when we think about following him, we're not really sure who we're following. And we're actually, when we're honest with ourselves, not sure why we are doing this thing called Christianity. And I think it's because we've lost sight of the Jesus who is at the center of it all. And so before we go any further and we get to our teaching text, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray that God would mess with you today. Uh, this is what we do here. I ask for the Spirit of God. I don't have any power. It's all, like, like, literally, it is the Spirit of God through the Word of God who does this work of stirring our affections for Jesus and, like, messing with us in the best of ways. So I'm going to pray for that right now. If you want to receive that, um, great. <laughs> Father, we uh, we submit that there is no turn of phrase there is no comp- like composition of a song. There's no arrangement. There's no like movement. There's none of this is going to bring our hard, calloused hearts to a place of being soft and vibrant before you. You alone will do that, and so we are asking God that you would do that now. That you like would meet with us, like uh, uh, like these people here, myself included. God, would you help us to see the beauty of Jesus? Would you help us to hear and respond to him as we like, turn to your word, God? Meet us now, we pray. Amen. So in Mark 1:15, which is the verse that precedes our teaching text, uh, that there is this call that Jesus extends. And I'm, I'm just going to invite us to, to turn there with me. So if you don't have uh, like a physical Bible, you can tap your way on over. Otherwise, flip your way to Mark chapter 1. And this is our teaching text from last week, but there's this call that Jesus extends. It's this call to, to once more turn towards the way and will of God in the world or what Jesus calls the, excuse me, the kingdom of God. And this is what we read on Jesus's lips in Mark 1:15. He says this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn around and believe or trust in the gospel, trust in the good news. And then Jesus' very next move after calling for repentance of these people, isn't just to say, okay, now go forge your own way. You just go figure it out. I'm gonna gonna kick back and you just go do your own thing. No, 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 Jesus says, repent. And believe in the gospel, and then his very next move is to make a way forward for these people to do this with him. It's because Jesus doesn't extend a call and then not follow through on it. And so, starting in verse 16, go here with me, I'm gonna read through to verse 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, "Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men." Now uh, we're gonna turn our attention to that uh, weird phrase here in just a moment, but we'll keep going. Uh, verse 18. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and were in the net or were, who, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So to keep in step with Jesus, that is to follow him, according to Jesus, is to become fishers of men. So I, I don't know about you, um, but as, as I was like, um, every time I hear this phrase, it is so weird. It makes little to no sense to my modern mind. Am I, am I, am I alone in this? Do you read this and go, well, duck, I like, you're actually all fisher people. Okay, so... Um, this phrase is weird to me, but then what I started doing this week is I just started sitting with it and then appealing to people who are smarter than me uh, to say, what in the world is Jesus talking about? And as, as soon as you start doing this, like uh, you just dig just beneath the surface, you realize that Jesus is being extremely culturally savvy and not, he's not only just being culturally savvy, but he is tapping into the prophetic imagination of the Hebrew people. And what I mean there is he's quoting the prophet Jeremiah And the prophet Jeremiah, he is called the weeping prophet because he is given some really hard news to deliver to the people of Israel. And oftentimes, Jeremiah is coming with this hard news to a people whose hearts are hard. Like God says, they won't receive it, but you deliver the news nevertheless. So Jesus picks up on these words from the prophet Jeremiah. And if you want, you can flip over with me to Jeremiah chapter, I'm gonna get there, trust me. There we go. Chapter 16, starting in verse 16, or it'll be up on the screen. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send many hunters and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks for my eyes are on all their ways. And then check this out. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. You see, Jesus is using this uh, savvy expression because it's this like idiom. It's this common expression used to talk about rabbis that they're gonna make people become fishers of men, but it's a loaded expression. It's a loaded expression because the sobering reality of Jesus's call is that as he like beckons Jeremiah's words forth in this moment, he's saying that with Jeremiah, he's going to confront sin and he's not going to do it alone, but he's gonna call these like ragtag group of people to do it with him. These, these people of Israel whose hearts are awash with evil, Jesus is saying, I am here to confront your sin. And he says it in this way that only the people who are attuned to God's word would understand. It says, you see, these people of Israel, I, I don't know if like we actually get the gravity of what God is saying here through Jeremiah, that, that they are not hidden. That is, their evil ways are not hidden. Their iniquity is not concealed from his eyes. These would be people who in the same breadth of a day would go to the temple of God in Jerusalem and offer up a sacrifice. They would offer up a sacrifice of praise or maybe a grain offering or a Thanksgiving offering. And then that same day or the next day, they would take their firstborn son. In the same manner, they took their sacrifice to the altar of God and they would alter, like, offer their son outside the city gates to a foreign God. Like, Do, do, you, do you feel the weight of that? I have like a little a little guy, his name's Griffin, and I cannot, in my wildest of dreams, I I cannot fathom like saying this morning, helping to lead through worship through the word of God, and then tomorrow taking him to his death. This is what God sees. He sees it all. He sees the hidden sins, he sees the blatant sins. So to be a catcher is to be caught by God and it is very much the feeling. Like ramp up to like infinity, that feeling that happens when the red and blue lights go on behind you. You know that like that feeling in your gut, it, everything flips upside down. Imagine that to infinity. This is what it is to be caught by God. It's this moment of raw exposure. And and I think that we've all felt this to one degree or another, at one time or another. It's this moment where we are found out and it's not pleasant. This is Jesus' call. How are we doing? I'm just here to cheer us all up this morning. See, following Jesus is is not only a call for these men to like reckon with their sin. It's a call for them to participate in God's renewal by inviting other people to reckon with their sin because the way forward to God is through reckoning with our sin. This is what the gospel actually does. This is what we will get to in this message. But before we do that, See, this call to partner with God is quite interesting. Jesus doesn't just have this one-off moment with these four gentlemen. He he actually turns to some unexpected people and invites them to do some unexpected things. Let me just show you. Turn the page with me to Mark chapter two, starting in verse 13, and, and we read this. He, this is Jesus, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, "Follow me." And he rose and followed him. And just a little context: to be a tax collector in this time was to be a traitor to the people of Israel. It not only meant getting in bed with Rome to enforce their taxes, which sometimes escalated up to like ninety percent, but it was also the oppression of your own people. See, if you were going to make any money as a tax collector. What you needed to do, let's just hypothetically say the tax of Rome was 60% at the time. And so you have your little tax booth, it's a station. You're, you're situ- situated there around the Sea of Galilee in the northern parts of Israel. And these people are coming, and, and you're saying, Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm here to collect the taxes on behalf of Rome. So they come and they pay, and, and they know it's 60%, but you say, That's no, 65. Excuse me? No, it's 60. Not 65 today. Actually, I heard it was 70. Is it so- Yeah, it's 70 today. Oh, excuse me, Mr. Centurion, uh, this citizen doesn't want to pay their taxes. Oh, oh you, oh, you still, you don't? Okay, Centurion would come over, break their kneecap. So this is this is like the tone of Jesus's. Like this is the Bible, Gateway. Here we are. <laughs> See, many Jews hated tax collectors. But Jesus calls them to follow him. Turn the page. Just look what he invites Levi to do. So we're in Mark 2. Turn with me to Mark 3. Starting in verse 13 again. And this is Jesus. He went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. And that he might send them out, and pay attention to this, he might send them out, a man like Levi, to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So this man may have just stripped you of your dignity on a Tuesday. And the following month, you see him again. And he is now going to bless you. He's not just gonna bless you, but he might, he might actually like cast out a demon. He might preach with authority this is, this is what the call of Jesus does. It turns lives upside down and right side up. See, but, see, but the, by this point, when Jesus calls these people, he, he has this whole crew of outcasts and rebels and traitors. And yet these are the ones who are participating in God's renewal. It's not the religious elite, it's these rebels. And I think it might be easy to, to look at all of this with some rose colored glasses and say, wow, isn't Jesus amazing? And the answer is yes. He is beautiful, beyond belief. But this call, it is a high call. It comes with great cost. And so turn the page a couple more times until you get to Mark chapter eight, verse 34. And this is what we read in verses 34 and 35. And calling the crowd, to him with his disciples. He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever who whatever, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So when Jesus calls Simon and Andrew and James and John to follow him, what's he calling them to? Like like, what is, what is Jesus then by extension calling us who would follow after him? What, what is he calling us to? How do we make sense of this? Like it's certainly not a call to individualism. It's certainly not a call to just forge your own way forward in the world because we see here it's to deny yourself. To, to lose your life is to save your life. I mean, Jesus is saying to pick up your cross. Who would do this? Well, As it turns out, a lot of people would do this. You know, some 2,000 years later, millions and millions, if not billions of people have done this thing of giving their allegiance to Jesus, have taken up their cross and have followed after him by denying themselves. But who are these disciples? And this is that strange word that we read earlier on that we would get back to. And I said we'd get back to, here's it. Here's a little context around this word, disciple. See, this, this word, disciple, that we encounter, it's a fine English translation. It's a translation of this Greek word, mathetes. Can you say this with me? Mathetes. Oh, one more time, with some vigor. Mathetes. Oh, lovely. See, it's a bit of an awkward word, this mathetes, or disciple. Uh, and... Um, you know, unless you're a Christian, you probably don't use the word disciple. Like, I don't see many people tweeting about being discipled or anything like that outside of, like, churchianity. And so what you get is then some people who are like, okay, like, disciple's a little bit hard to understand, so let's just use the word follower. Well, okay, um, that's, that's fine, um, but what, what, do we, what do we mean when we say follower, because this word follower, it's like a wash in social media. So when I follow Jesus, does that mean I'm following him? Like I follow the same like influencer on Instagram. The You know, the person with like the perfectly curated plant game. Like their plant game is so strong. And my plants are like dying at home. So I look at their Instagram and then I look at my plants and there's a clear gap in how I'm living. And I'm just like, oh. So am I following Jesus like I'm following that influencer? So... The tension with this in our, like, in our cultural moment is that word follower, it just loses the tension. It's, again, it's a fine English translation of the Greek word mathetes, which is what the New Testament was originally written in, but it just lacks some traction. And so um, what's actually gained a lot of traction amongst Bible nerds today is this term apprenticeship. And I think that we can sink our teeth into this term because it's a term that's used normally. So if I had a vision for my life, If the vision for my life coming out of, I don't know, like high school or undergrad or or wherever, I just needed a career shift and I wanted to become a pipe fitter. Well, then what I would do is I would begin to apprentice under a pipe fitter. Somebody who'd had experience doing this, but perhaps a master pipe fitter. And I would begin to sit with them and spend hours and, and learn what they're doing and, and, and then put my hands on some pipes and get some wrenches. And, and do, I don't know, I've never uh, put pipes together, but I'm thinking this is what they do. So if this was my vision for it, then I would need a guide to help offer me some course corrections. This is the, this is the idea of apprenticeship. And so Jesus' call to follow him is this call to apprenticeship. It's to, it's to sit with him, to learn the ways of Jesus. It's to apprentice under him. And Jesus, he doesn't pioneer this whole concept of discipleship. I and mean, just think his cousin, John the baptizer, he had disciples. There's this uh, rabbi who went before them, Rabbi Hillel, a famous teacher in the day, had upwards of like 70 apprentices or disciples. And for many, it comes as an even greater shock that the, these Jewish rabbis, they didn't invent this idea of discipleship, but rather this idea of discipleship, it jumped across the Mediterranean over to, to like Israel uh, because it's, we see in the literature that Plato himself was known as a mathetase of Socrates, And yet, in Jesus' world, discipling becomes the pinnacle of the Jewish education system. You see, the the Jewish people pride themselves on being a people of the land, a people of the promised land, but right now they sit under Roman military oppression. And so the land that is theirs is not really theirs. And so what begins to emerge in the lives of these Hebrew people is a pride over their family heritage. It's this like vigor to know what their foundation story is. And so what spurs them on is to pass their story on to the next generation. It's to say that if this dies with us, it dies. That if we don't like tell people, our young people, the story of God, the story of God will die in the next generation, certainly by the third. It's evidence all throughout the Hebrew. Just read your Old Testament, go to like Judges or go to one or two Chronicles and you'll just see that soon enough, it just fades into the backdrop until God raises up a person to call the people back to faithfulness. And so with the spirit to keep the story alive, they have this robust form of education that forms. And when I think, when I'm saying education, you're thinking, oh, is this a fancy education like Montessori school or something? No, uh, think like PhD, think uh, doctoral fellowship. And and the first rung of this, this would be accessible to most young peoples uh, and it would be called Beit Sefer or house of the book. And so this would be, uh, so students would come and they would memorize the Torah or one of the first five books of the Bible. And so uh, Christy doesn't know this, but I'm just thinking, hey, why not just shift over our curriculum for foundations in elementary? Like if it was good enough there in Israel, we'll just, we're just gonna start a full throttle uh, memorization program of the Torah. So if you have kids, please bring them. It's gonna be lit, as the youth say. So, yeah, so here we have this new, I'm, I'm joking, although that would be pretty cool. Uh, so, so most people stopped after this. They would stop at around age nine, and then they would go and they would continue their apprenticeship, not in the word of God, but they would do it in an agricultural setting or masonry or, or the family biz, whatever that may be. For our guys today, it was fishing. Uh, but, you know, for the, for the boys, and I'm saying boys specifically, uh, for the boys ages 10 to 14, um, like if they excelled they would then go on to this next level called Beit Talmud or the house of learning. Beit is just the Hebrew word for house and in this space it would maybe at your local synagogue or, or like a, a neighboring synagogue there would be this little building built onto the side of it and you would go there and if you excelled or maybe you were just upper middle class and so you had some privilege you would go into that space and you would learn and now you're not just learning about the Torah but you're learning about the whole of the Hebrew Bible and, and you're, as you're learning about the whole of the Hebrew Bible, you're looking at the covenant purposes of God, but you're also starting to cultivate what they would call the curiosity for God's word. So they would start, and they would do this by asking questions. And the goal was not just to present a straightforward answer, but it was to do this very Jesus-y thing. You'll notice that Jesus does this in the gospel stories. Um, he answers a question about a question. And for us, it's infuriating. But for Jesus, he's like, Uh, like judo master with these things and and we actually um, we get a scene that this this may be jesus in a bait talmud we don't know for sure but gosh it looks like it so this is in uh, the gospel according to luke in chapter two we actually have this little account here We read this. This is, After three days they found him, that is Jesus. So the the setting here is his family had made the pilgrimage uh, from up in the Galilee down to Jerusalem for Passover. And after three days they found him sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. See, the, the picture here is of Jesus cultivating his curiosity. we're told that he, he grew in wisdom and knowledge and stature, and Jesus is cultivating his curiosity and wonder of the Word of God and yet and yet notice this it's kind of flipped. Jesus is the one leading in this moment it's a bit a bit subversive Jesus even as a teenager. and if this was your last stage in the learning process, then once again you would go back to the family business and but if you were truly elite, like the best of the best of the best, then you would travel up to the area, to this region of the Galilee, which was just saturated with these rabbis, and you would seek a rabbi out, and you would begin to go through this process where they would uh, like, interview you, it's the most rigorous of application processes. And, and you would go and, and they would start to ask you questions and there'd be preliminary questions and main questions. And I think you're getting at all the questions. And eventually, if they think you had the chops, they would look at you and they would say, follow me. And this, this would be the process in Beit Midrash or the house of study. And now in this place, uh, this this invitation to follow them, uh, these rabbis are itinerant. So that means they're traveling around. And so you're gonna follow your rabbi. So that means you're gonna go from synagogue to synagogue. You're, you're gonna go to like watch your rabbi teach. You're gonna like sleep next to your rabbi. You're gonna eat with and like your rabbi. You're gonna start to speak like your rabbi. The intonation of his voice, like all the little inflections, all of it. There's even, as I was in a deep, deep rabbit hole studying all this, um, there is this moment where there's an account of a rabbi who walked with a limp. And so his healthy apprentices would walk with a limp because so desperately did they want to be like their rabbi because the goal was to actually then become like your rabbi. But in the midst of this, like of, of the Beit Midrash, they would, people would look at you and they'd say, yes, you must be Rabbi Hillel's disciple or whomever. Rabbi Gamaliel, yes, this is certainly a disciple of Rabbi. Like, this is, this is the framework. This is your goal. This is your vision. And your rabbi is there to lead you toward that end. See, the end of this whole thing is to do what your rabbi did, to become a rabbi yourself. And I don't know if you feel the weight of this. If you're like, well, that's some nice history channel information, Kyle, but uh, what's this have to do with me following Jesus? Like, just t- take a moment Is it any wonder that Simon, and Levi, Andrew, James, John, is it any wonder that they got up immediately and followed Jesus? See, if you were fishing, what did that mean? It meant that you got passed over. It meant that you didn't measure up. It meant that you weren't good enough. It meant that you were in some sense not an elite. And yet Jesus comes, he comes to the outcasts, he comes to the passed over and he says, I want you. I want you and I want you. All your brokenness, yeah, 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 bring that. All your evil, yeah, I know about that. Yeah, I want that. All, all those little things that you just call like cute little idiosyncrasies that later along your, your spouse is gonna call annoying. Yeah, I want all those too. Give the, I want all of that. That's what Jesus is calling to himself. He's saying, follow me. No, you don't have to take any tests. Don't clean yourself up to come to me. I'm the one who initiates, follow me. See, the call of Jesus is to deny our vision of the good life and to receive with humility Jesus's vision of life to the full. And then to to actually trust him to lead us along the way. So how's that going for you? Like in my life, I I have a great vision for my life. I heard that God has some plans and stuff, but I'd love to take care of those for him. So it's really easy to trust me because I know me a little bit. It's easy to trust Jessica because I know her a little bit. Oftentimes God feels really distant. So um, this is not an easy call to receive. But this is this is far more than just right thinking about Jesus. That's Bible and theology. It's far more than just right living. That's just like a moral ethical vision. That's like we can we can get that anywhere else. See, it's 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 this holistic vision of, our, of all of ourselves, all of these component parts of who we are, reorienting all of it toward the work and way of Jesus to be like our rabbi. But, but anchoring ourselves in God's presence is, is quite difficult, would you say? It's a, it's a long, often painstaking process. It takes a great measure of intentionality It's not like you just trust Jesus on a Sunday and then by Friday, you're like this embodiment of the Sermon on the Mount. Like people are like, oh my gosh, so patient. Yes, that's just the the gap is too wide. And so I I like how Dallas Willard says this. He's a a brilliant thinker. He says it this way. He says, our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. And I just want to stop right there. I know that for many of us in our church, this thing is difficult because right now our life is a living hell. And there's no, like it is the most difficult thing just to get up, let alone direct and redirect our minds to God. But I just want to say like, he is patient. He's so patient. See, Willard goes on to say this. He says, In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God, which is Willard's really kind and wordy way of saying, you get distracted. But these are habits, he goes on to say, not the law of gravity and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. I love that image. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. So like apprenticeship to the way of Jesus will not happen by accident. It's the pull of our phones, like the current of our culture, the distraction, the noise, like the real good things in the world, they are too strong for us to just think that showing up here two or three times a month, maybe volunteering one of those times, that that is gonna be robust enough for us to anchor ourselves in the presence of God. Our, like, so for some of you, we're still, I'm still learning what it is to be your pastor. You're still learning what it is to be like shepherd. We are all learning. Amen? Amen. Um, to follow Jesus, it's just not going to happen by accident. It's just not. And so, so for some of us this morning, we need to seriously consider the reality that it's, it's like that we are being formed right now. It's either formation in the way of Jesus or something else. It's, it's our family of origin. It's our sexual desires. See, it's not a question of am I being discipled. It's a question of who or what is discipling me. And you will either be passively formed into the image, some image the world has of you, some image your colleagues have of you, some image your friends have of you, some image the Instagram influencer has over you. You will either be passively formed into that or you will be formed into the image of Jesus slowly but surely. And it will be a death from here to here, but on the other side, there is life. See, the world will not tell you that they want to take your soul, but check this out. So I'm I'm listening to like the coverage of the caucuses in New Hampshire, and I hear Amy Klobuchar say this legit, I don't just need your votes, I need your heart. And I look at Jess and I'm like, she's saying it. They're not even like insinuating it. They're straight up saying, I want your heart. Are you kidding me? No. But you know what? She has a lot of people's hearts, doesn't she? See, the way of Jesus says, no. This moment right here, when we think this is the tangible hope, and then we put our time and our energy and our resources and we show up, This is the moment where we deny our vision of the good life and we pick up our cross, which says there is no other name on heaven or on earth upon which one can be saved except for Jesus. These are the moments. So this is why it will not happen by accident because I'm captivated by Klobuchar. I'm like, that is a, you have some fire, get it. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones. How will it happen? As we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. I don't know what those steps are for you. But the end goal of Jesus's call isn't just to think nice things about Jesus. It's to pick up where Jesus left off. It's to do what he did. It's, it's to, like, to, to the point where when we walk the streets of our neighborhoods, that we actually have on mind the way of God. So we see our neighbors and we're praying for them, maybe under our breath, maybe we're actually praying for them. All the introverts are like, oh no. Yes, perhaps you are actually praying aloud and with them. Or or maybe you're just like inviting the stranger and maybe you're just extending your bandwidth long enough to just say hello to them. It's actually having grace towards them. It's when you like sit down in the cafe, uh, you actually have like, Room in your heart to be interrupted? Have you noticed that in Jesus's life as you, because um, I know you're all just reading back and forth, back and forth through the gospel according to Mark as we go through it. Um, like, have you noticed that most of Jesus's moments of like great power and miracles and healing is when he's interrupted? There's this moment where Jesus, his, his disciples have just gone and they've done this thing. They've preached with authority. They've cast out demons and they're going to retreat. They're going to get away And yet the crowds see Jesus and they come after him. And Mark says that that Jesus has compassion. You know the root of this word compassion, it actually comes uh, from from the same root of womb. So men, we don't know what this is, so we need to look to the women in the room to learn compassion. See, compassion is this, this parental love that a woman has towards her baby. This is the feeling that Jesus has towards The crowds, people who are gonna say, crucify him. And so he in that moment, he feeds thousands of people. This is this is the invitation of Jesus. Follow me. How, How do you do when somebody interrupts you? You have it in your mind? Let's reimagine that in the way of Jesus. I get so impatient. (laughs) But the invitation of Jesus is to lay aside my vision of the good life and embrace his, which is upside down, because it's actually to deny myself. Isn't this weird? Look at us. Like, if we actually did this, what, what do you think Des Moines would be like? What do you think it would be like? You know, it's really scary is uh, there's research that's coming out on the forthcoming generation and about 64% of the next generation will walk away from following Jesus. They will have grown up in a family that does love and follow Jesus and they'll walk away. So just imagine this. Imagine if we rolled our, like, our crew in from Gateway Kids right now and we put them up here on the stage. So we got like, I have Finn over here and we have like Jude. Dan, like all of our kids are up here. And then I look at them, I say, okay, um, two thirds of you go, go, go to stage left you all will become atheists in college. You all, the moment you step on campus or the moment you step into high school and you go to your first party, you're gonna lose your virginity. You're gonna become an atheist the next year and you're gonna like plunder all of your student loans on wild living. You, you will walk faithfully with God. I'm not talking about following Jesus to make us feel good. I'm not talking about following Jesus because I want us to live a better life. I'm not talking about this to like make us think that this is the present moment that we need to like seize it and get after it. This is what you have. I'm saying this because my son is either gonna grow up and embrace and love Jesus or he's gonna turn away from him. And you are gonna be the people who forms him into the image of Jesus through the power of the spirit. You know what it's gonna take? It's gonna take a bunch of awkward old people talking to a young man about what it is to be faithful. You're gonna take him out and you're gonna have like, I don't know, frozen yogurt or a coffee because I don't know what you do with young people yet. And then you're just gonna have this conversation about what it looks like to live faithfully. And you're gonna tell the stories of how you sucked at it, but how God was gracious and faithful and that how he carried you through. And Gateway, we are either going to be a church that in the next years builds in our hearts and in our imaginations a prophetic witness, that is to say that there is a hope in Jesus or we are gonna die. So I'm not talking about following Jesus because it makes us feel good. I think that is a byproduct, like Jesus is actually interested in our joy. I'm talking about following Jesus because if we don't, it dies. And I refuse to say to my son, I didn't point you to Jesus. And so you know what, I need need you to point me to Jesus and I need to point you to Jesus. And then we all need to take account of our gifts and our skills and all of this. And this isn't like a shameless plug for membership class, but the only way that this is gonna happen is if we do life together. So let me just give you some uh, baby steps. By the way, we're almost done. (laughs) There's some faces in here you don't recognize. Nod with me if you know that's true. You're still here. Yes, you're breathing. This is my invitation. Say something to them. Oh, here, I'll give you the line. How'd you hear about Gateway? What they're likely going to say is, I found it on the internet. (laughs) Yeah, great search engine optimization. It's fantastic. Second choice on Google. Okay, well, a bunch of people are going to go to Gusto's. You want to come? I know it's kind of awkward sometimes, and we sit there and, you know, people talk about soccer and, I don't know, or football, as they say, elsewhere in the world. But do you want to come? Maybe, I'd love to hear your story. That's what we want. See, following Jesus is making space for other people to follow Jesus with you. So you say, I don't know the first thing about discipleship. I, I don't have any of the Bible memorized. That's okay. Where are you at right now? Well, that's a good place to start. Has Jesus met you with grace today? Yesterday? Two days ago? A year ago? Ten years ago? Start there. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.